Hi everyone, and welcome back to China in the Americas podcast. Today we are speaking with Federico Cicada. He is the head of country research and portfolio manager for the emerging markets team at Eaton Vance. Eaton Vance is part of Morgan Stanley Investment Management. In our wide-ranging conversation about debt financing in small emerging markets, we covered everything from why would a government prefer a private lender relative to more conventional loans to the discussion of the potential crowding out effect of Chinese loans in the Caribbean. I had a great time talking about these topics with Federico, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thank you so much, Federico, for coming on the podcast today. Thank you, uh, uh, Rashid. It's definitely great to be here. I've loved uh, listening to, to all of your episodes. They've been really fantastic. It's a it's a very specific area, the relationship of China and the Americas, and I'm really glad that that there's somebody who, who's looking at it. So I want to start about fundamental debt metrics and debt in general, because obviously when you're thinking about borrowing loans and well, sorry, borrowing money. You kind of have to do that based on something, and I know that typically people look at the debt GDP ratio as like the standard bearer for any kind of debt metric. There are some obvious weird flaws with that. I'm personally surprised that it takes such a prominence, at least in econ reporting. I'm not sure exactly in your specific business line if it actually takes that prominence. But yeah, I'm curious if the debt metrics we know of. Is the best way to assess the quality of the emerging market when it comes to making loans to them, right? So, Rashid,、um, I think that's a really important question. It's a, it's, it's, it's a very important topic,、uh, not only from the perspective of investors making decisions, but also, frankly, from the perspective of how、uh, international financial institutions, such as the IMF and the World Bank, are judging the performance of of, of different countries. So we we certainly and I certainly look at a lot of different、uh, debt metrics, but we also look a lot at, at qualitative、uh, elements such as policy. Now, with respect to debt levels specifically and debt to GDP, you know, a lot of people look at a high debt to GDP, say north of one hundred percent or north of one hundred and twenty percent, and they say, "Wow, that's a really high level. This country is is going to default. It's in a really bad bad shape." I look at that same level, and frankly, I don't take a lot of information from that number. I think there are countries that have high debt levels which are good places to invest, and I think that there are、uh, countries that have those same、uh, high debt levels and are bad places to invest. I mean, I find sometimes the the focus on on that number to be very problematic. There's a number of theoretical issues、uh, with looking at debt to GDP. So, you know, just for to rattle off a few is that debt. Uh, to GDP is not taking into account any assets uh, uh, that that you have, so it's a little bit of me、um, looking at you as an individual and saying, "Oh, you have a mortgage. Wow, your debt to GDP is really, really high." But when I do that, I forget the fact that you also have a house, and that house is is worth something, right? And and there, there's many other theoretical problems like that. I would also just say that there's a very practical problem with、uh, with with debt to GDP, which is that even in practice, it doesn't seem to tell you all that much. Because I think what we as investors care about is the future. And so I'll I'll tell you a little bit of, about Greece, which I I think is a good example to 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 see this. If you look at Greece in 2011,、uh, uh, right before its its big、uh, restructuring, it had a debt level of approximately 184 percentage points of GDP. 
and then had its restructuring, debt levels fell a bit because of it. And when the IMF did its debt sustainability analysis at that time, it said it was really, really important that Greece's debt levels fall further because if not, debt would clearly be unsustainable. And at that time, you had debt levels at about 160 percentage points of GDP. Now, that was 2012. You fast forward to 2019 and debt levels were at about 185 percentage points of GDP. So actually higher than the, the where they were before. So you might say, oh, Federico, so the country m- must, must be in a huge crisis and they must be about to default on their debt or have to restructure. But in fact, the uh, five-year credit spreads for the country closed that year at about 110 basis points, so indicating a very, very low probability of default. And so what was going on there? Well, the main issue that the debt-to-GDP to level was not taking into account is that you had a new government in that had a clear policy to try to bring the country back to fiscal sustainability to have a predictable fiscal policy, to have an environment that was uh, conducive to to growing the, the economy. And in that context, investors can say, actually, that debt level is really, really, uh, is really, really uh, sustainable. But looking at that debt to GDP metric doesn't take that into account. Whereas I think looking at qualitative things like policy can be really, really important. Well, when you say a policy, is, is there a more specific aspect of policies you look at? So, for example, we would typically hear about Japan has an outrageous like, 266% debt GDP. And someone like Cambodia has about 29% GDP debt. But intuitively, we know these are not the same kind of countries. And someone that wants to invest in Cambodia will say, well, okay, the government's a bit autocratic or a lot autocratic and so on and so on. So I'm looking at what aspects of policy are they, and is it also the structural politics that you take it to account as well? Yeah, so the, the, the policy question is, is a complex one, but I'll, I'll note, I guess, uh, maybe three in, 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 uh, important policies. So one is the general support for the business environment. And support for the business environment doesn't necessarily mean that the country is uh, trying to subsidize its corporations, but rather that it has a predictable environment where companies there can, can do business, where there can also be competition uh, to make sure that, that existing uh, businesses are, are trying to do uh, their best and where the economy can grow. And that's a really, really uh, important part. And I think that's frankly something that countries like the U.S., they actually do relatively well at uh, uh, compared to, to some other countries. Beyond that, there is also clearly fiscal policy, which is just, you know, is the country trying to have a relatively low deficit and managing that deficit in a way that they can finance it? Uh, the way that they can finance it is a pretty key part, and that varies a lot from country to country. Some countries just have more ability to to finance uh, their, their, their deficits uh, because the, the, there's more savings in that country. In some other countries, you might find that the more savings constrained, in which case the country cannot run that, that large of a fiscal deficit. The third policy that is important, and it is particularly important when you're looking at something like Cambodia, Japan versus Greece, is, is monetary policy. What, one big example that, that people like to give when they say that debt levels don't matter is Japan. Um, I purposefully actually picked Greece because I think one very important difference with, with Japan is that Japan has its own currency. Japan has a, a has has a central bank that is considered to be credible, and so lots of people are willing to lend to it in local currency. 
Whereas even in the case of Greece, um, where you actually don't have that that monetary policy, so the the central bank can't 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 print its own money. It don't, it doesn't have its own local currency. But you can still see there that that the effects of policy are actually really really important. And in this case, the the effects of policy are more specifically that the debt can be considered uh, sustainable by virtue of having a much better business environment and fiscal policy. When you're looking at business environment, do you look at something World Bank? either do a business report or some other kind of external metric? Yeah, so we basically uh, take an approach of looking at, at many different metrics, recognizing that any one given uh, a metric is flawed. So one that we think is good is the Frazier uh, uh, Economic Freedom Index. So so this is an index that essentially is looking uh, at the amount of, of regulation in a country that is uh, looking uh, at the ease of trading across borders that is looking at, at the quality uh, of uh, of central bank policy. This is, I think, a, a very informative index. When you look at a lot of academic research on the effects of economic freedom, they tend to use the, this index mostly. Uh, the problem is that it only gets uh, updated with about a two to three year lag. So if you want to know what's going on today in a country, it's not very useful. The World Bank doing business indicators uh, were very useful. They are actually no longer being published. So, so that's one that you can depend on. But then there, there are other ones that are good too, such as the, the worldwide governance indicators, which I believe are produced by the World Bank. Um, those will give you some, some, some good information. But as somebody who spends a lot of time looking at emerging markets and at frontier markets, and uh, to be frank, as somebody who, who enjoys traveling as well, I think there's no substitute for actually going to the country and 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 talking to uh, the different people just to understand the whole story and what's going on with policy. And when I mean talking to the different people, I don't mean just talking to government officials, but you also want to talk to uh, people in the private sector. Uh, you want to talk to to academics, uh, people who work at think tanks, people who work at different uh, civil society groups, uh, just to get the whole picture. I'm curious if in, for example, these index about Fraser and World Bank and so on, are there any specific categories that present red flags to you off the bat? Like for example, you would hear, you know, for a trivial example, you would hear, okay, of this country, it takes two months to open the bank account. It takes two days here. Are there any particular categories that are like very important to have optimized when you're thinking about business environment? Yes. That's a really good question. I would say that there's not actually one red flag across countries because each country has its own uh, uh, particularities and its own points that, that matter more. So, you know, j- just to, to give you some, some examples, you know, when, when we used to look at Venezuela, uh, it's, it's, it's not an, really an investable country now, but it, but it used to be. Probably the main thing that you cared about was the quality of, of governance at the state oil company, which of course was very related to the quality of governance uh, at the central government. And there, you know, a lot of what you're thinking about is things like corruption or are the people in charge? Do they actually have the, the requisite degrees to, to, to have those positions? When you look at a much smaller country that might still have a, a state oil company, but that doesn't produce any oil, Frankly, the governance of that company, of that, that state-owned uh, enterprise is just not that important. But there might be other things that, that, that you really, really uh, care about. So it actually varies uh, quite a bit from, from country to country. Okay, that's interesting. So you spend a lot of your time trying to figure out where to invest in emerging markets, especially in bond markets. And 
you know, that kind of asks, kind of demands to ask the question, typically why would a, a country want to borrow from a private, commercially driven, profit-driven lender as opposed to what we call concessionary finance? I have a view on that, but I'm curious why, why you think that that is. Sure. So, uh, Rashid, I think there's two things to, to, to think about when answering that question about why wanting to, to borrow a commercial so one, maybe the, the, the more straightforward one that, that, that people think about is that there's only so much concessional financing, right? So, so if, if I'm a government and I, I come into power and I decide that the roads in, in my country are very, very poor and I really want to, want to build out that infrastructure, but I can only get concessional financing up to a certain amount. And I'm looking at these roads and I'm saying, you know what? The, the IRR of investing in, in a road network is 20%. Well, then, you know, borrowing money at a, at a third of that cost is, is literally creating wealth, right? That's a very positive thing, even though some people might say, but a 7% interest rate is much, much higher than the 1% interest rate that you would get on, on the concessional side. So it actually expands your, your ability to invest and it can literally uh, create wealth. A second reason that maybe people think about a, a little bit less, but I think is, is really important is that is that commercial financing oftentimes comes with A, a lot less strings attached, and then B, it's also a lot faster. So, you know, this isn't directly an, uh, an example of a government borrowing, but I, but I think it's, it's similar. I was once doing a, a course at the Harvard Kennedy School, and, and it was about a, a development, about growth. And there was w- one person there who worked at a, at a nonprofit in Colombia. This person approached the, the professor and was saying, you know what, I have a question for you. My, my nonprofit is, is trying to grow. We have some really great things. We're, we're getting this funding from the World Bank, but the World Bank keeps on asking for these other documentations. They want to see this other study. They, they want to see how the funds are going to be used in this way. And it's taking up a lot of my time. And the professor was very direct and he said, don't do it. You're, <laughs> you're telling me here that, that you actually have a lot of good things to do with your time, that, you're, that your organization is being impactful but that you're not doing that impactful work because you're, you're trying to fill out a bunch of forms. And that can actually become a, a real cost uh, for some countries. Now, I, I will say, though, that when, when I say that the money comes with less strings attached, it doesn't mean that investors aren't looking to see what is going to be the, the use of proceeds. In an ideal situation, uh, a government and its investors are in, in, in regular communication so that when a government says, okay, you know, we need to borrow $500 million, we need to borrow $1 billion, $2 billion, they're not sort of building the relationship from, from scratch, but an investor can, can look at the country and say, oh, the Dominican Republic, okay, I, I know what they're planning on doing. They, they want to make some changes to the electricity sector, but they need a little bit of help with the subsidies. They're doing this. I've talked to the people. The, the story makes sense. And, and if that's true, then given the way the financial markets work, I mean, literally a minister could say, you know, Friday evening, hey, um, I think I'd, uh, I'd like some commercial funding, and they could probably have that money in their accounts just one week later. Mm. Do you know if there was a sort of bureaucratic creep when it came to constitutional financing? Let's say 20 years ago, was it easier to borrow money from the World Bank? Oh my, that's a very good question. Um, so I understand that these organizations have grown over time. I'm not sure if the growth over time means that it's easier or more difficult to borrow, right? Because you could say that, well, with, with more people, you should be able to, to streamline the, the operations. But at the same time, with more people, there may be more demands to, to be doing more or to be doing more supervision. I would say I'm, I'm really not sure, but 
I do believe that there have been more sort of KYC type checks and there have been some scandals in the past about where some of this money has ended up. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's actually more checks on, on, on the funding before it's able to, to leave the multilateral institution. That to me is, is, is interesting because I figured, you know, commercial lenders, they have to do a lot of checks as well, but they still do it faster. I find that kind of odd. So do you think that countries sometimes try to rely too much on conflictionary finance? So I think that's a very good question. And I, I, I would say yes, but I'll actually, I'll actually even rephrase my, my answer. And I'm saying that the fact that we're asking that question means already that, that the framing ha- has, framing has been mistaken. I don't think countries should be focusing as a matter of policy on achieving a certain debt level or achieving a certain borrowing rate. I think what, which, what should be happening is that a government should be saying, okay, what are, what are my priorities as a government? Which hopefully should be reflective of, um, what would I like the, the goals and outcomes to be for, for, for the residents of my country? And then I should be focusing on those things. Right. And so what do most people care about? Most people of any given country, I would, I, I would love to hear a, a counterexample here, but most people of any given country aren't so interested in knowing what the blended borrowing rate of their government is. Right. They, they want to know more about, okay, what, what are the, the educational uh, opportunities for my kids? If, if I want to, if I want to open up a, a business, what is the process of doing that? Um, what are, what are, what are the job opportunities in my region? You know, can I move from one city to a different city and, and be able to, to do that in a, in a cost effective way? You know, those are, those are the, the policies that I think that the government should, should focus on. And of course, that doesn't mean that, that the government is just going to be borrowing a lot of money over a lot of money over a lot of money. But the reason to not do that is because it's going to negatively affect some of the policy priorities that the government and its citizens itself, through a hopefully very participatory process, have decided that they want to go forward with. It's not actually the debt itself. Mm. Yeah, I think I agree with that. So you also, you don't, so I think maybe you don't specifically focus, but you do have a lot of um, investments in the Caribbean. I'm curious, what about the Caribbean? Is it just because it's just, you know, part of emerging markets? Uh, what about the Caribbean has a particular interest for you? Um, yeah, so that, that's a, that's a very good question. So, um, so I actually grew up, so I grew up in Colombia, uh, not, not on the Caribbean side, on the Pacific side, but you know, that, that basically led me to, to be very interested just to start out with in, in the region of Latin America and the Caribbean. In, in my current role, my, my, my job is to find investments in, in, in countries that look good on a, on a three to, to, to five year basis. And so from a work perspective, I'll tell you, and I think anybody who has done investing will also tell you that it's really important to find an edge. So there's a lot of very smart people who work in, in asset management. Um, there's a lot of very hardworking people who work in asset management. And I think a lot of people, particularly when, when they start out, they say, okay, I'm just going to try to be smarter and work harder than, than, than everybody else. And that's going to be my edge. And then they sort of quickly notice that that's not going to work out for, for them. Right. And, um, so from my perspective, the Caribbean, uh, because it is a, a smaller size than the most other investment destinations, it just tends to not get that much focus. 
So, so people tend to gravitate more towards, oh, what's going to happen in Brazil, what's going to happen in Turkey, in, in South Africa. These are the big countries that, that hit the headlines of, of the Financial Times and, and the Wall Street Journal. Whereas I kind of find, found that I want to gravitate towards those places where I think other people aren't looking that much. And still places that I think are, are very interesting because they have a lot of different issues going on in those countries so that I can, I can find some, some interesting places. Now, beyond that, on a more personal note, uh, so my wife's family is from the Caribbean. And so, you know, that, that's, that's, I feel that's always a, a good, uh, a personal reason to, to learn a lot, uh, a little bit more about the region. I see. So, so I'm from Barbados, you know, smack dead in Caribbean. And, you know, I would have these perspective reservations about dealing with Barbados government or other Caribbean governments. But I think, you know, in a previous conversation, uh, we spoke about the difference between, you know, debt investment and equity investment. We're you know, looking for the entire government to pull things wrong for the next generation. It's a much more short term window. Can you discuss the different features behind that? Yeah, yeah. So the, the debt investing versus uh, equity investing is, is a huge distinction. And you see that not only on the sovereign side, but on, on the corporate side as well. I guess I'll, I'll, I'll mention three things. Um, one is the, 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 the symmetries involved. The second is, is the tenor. And then the third is a little bit about the personality of who decides to, to get in, involved in which. So, you know, just to start out with, with the symmetry, you know, when, if, if I decide to, to buy a stock, if I decide to buy, Netflix or GameStop, maybe, or, you know, IBM or Apple or, or Ford or whatever. My upside can actually be really, really large, right? And in fact, historically, when, when you look at some of these stocks, you see that, that they go up in value 100%, 200%, uh, a lot more. And it's because the, the, the underlying drivers of the stock price, which is just your discounted dividends or, or earnings over a very long period of time can, can move around a lot. Now with bonds, you, you, you don't, you don't have that, that sort of level of excitement. Really what you have is at most, uh, you get paid back your interest plus the money that you put in to begin with. So that, that, that's the return pro- profile of, of debt versus equities. Um, with debt, you're not looking necessarily for a company that's going to be really, really exciting and be the next, you know, Uber or the next big thing. You're more interested in, okay, can the country in place actually uh, be able to, to, to make these payments over time? So the, the discussion that, that you're having is a, is, is a very different one. Um, that might also explain, you know, which I, I guess that gets um, to, I, I, I can see why uh, an equity investor in the Caribbean has a very different view than a debt investor in the Caribbean. If a country is going to grow s- slowly but steadily at 2%, for a debt investor, that, that might be perfectly fine. You know, the, the country can, can service its debt based on that. For an equity investor who's looking for growth, that might be really disappointing. And so that, that's, I think, is, 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 is one difference. Um, a second difference is uh, the, the time horizon, too. So with debt, um, you normally, not always, but, but you, you normally have a, a relatively fixed maturity. So call it five years, 10 years. If you go really, really long, 30 years. So when, when you're looking at, at what's going to happen in, in the country, you can more or less say like, okay, I'm planning 10 years out. I'm planning 15 uh, years out. It's a little bit different than when you're um, thinking about equities where people will generally say, well, no, that, you know, that I'm, I'm assuming that, that the company will, will be around for 30, 40, 50 years. Whether or not that's a good assumption is a, is, is a separate discussion because we all know of large companies that, that have gone uh, bankrupt. Uh, the third part that Sam, the, the equity versus debt is about the type of person who gets involved. 
people who get involved in debt investing tend to be a little bit more uh, mathematically focused just because you have a kind of a lot of fixed cash flows, you have interest rates, you can do math. If, if you, if, if you join doing math, then uh, you can, you have a lot to do in the fixed income space. But then also it will tend to be people who want to deal with, with, with macro issues and with, with understanding countries. Just because, you know, countries issue debt, but countries by and large don't issue equities. They sometimes issue equity like instruments, which can be very, very interesting. But, you know, if, if you're the type of person who is really interested in history and politics and all of that, then, then that type of person tends to become a debt investor. So, okay, we have this Caribbean debt, you know, profile, different, different differentiation. What then do you look at in the Caribbean, well, in any particular country, but in our case, the Caribbean here, well, what do you look at in the emerging market or small, especially small ones to say, okay, you know what? It's so it's time to put 500 million here and let us investigate three years. What profile is that? Okay. So, so let, let me answer that question in actually two different ways. And in one way is the way I think that that works generally for the asset class, not, not necessarily what, what, what I'm trying to do. And then I'll talk a little bit about what, you know, uh, what, what, uh, what I'm trying to do and what, what my colleagues are, are trying to do. So first off, talking about emerging markets as an asset class and then Car- the Caribbean as part of that. Essentially, all funds uh, in that space, you can categorize them as active funds or passive funds. Active funds will will not really follow a benchmark or will follow a lot less passive funds will follow benchmark up pretty, pretty carefully. So let, let's just stick to, to the, to, to the passive side. So if you look at the uh, universe of emerging market debt denominated in dollars governed by, by foreign law, which are all important distinctions, very, very roughly, you're probably about like 1.2 trillion or something like that. Now, when you look at that number for, for the Caribbean, and I'll call it the traditional Caribbean countries, even though I know that the definition of Caribbean is, is uh, still somewhat, uh, 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 somewhat up for grabs. I mean, you know, that one will be more like $40 billion. So it's only about like three to 4% of the overall asset class. Now, passive funds will follow a benchmark for us in emerging markets is generally the JP Morgan emerging markets bond index. And, so they will then allocate capital to different countries just based on, on, on what that, that benchmark says. The benchmark reflects more or less the actual issuance of debt. So the Caribbean will be approximately 4% of their allocation. Uh, and so just off the bat, that's actually telling you a lot of the money that goes into the Caribbean debt markets is a function of things that have nothing to do with the Caribbean. It's a function of what the index says. And then it's a function of whether or not large institutions with money, such as pension funds, insurance companies, decide to invest in emerging markets. So that's the answer for the the, the sort of the, the broad universe, uh, primarily passive. Now, what what we do, and and, and we do take a, a a very active view, is we say no, no, no. We we actually want to pick countries. We understand that the benchmark exists. Um, we will pay some attention to to the benchmark, but we'll we're trying to take a lot more more active views. And so actually going back to what we, we discussed um, uh, at the very beginning, we're going to look a lot at policy, more specifically the direction of policy, and then we're also going to look at valuation. So when we talk about the direction of policy, you know, the, the primary question that we're trying to answer is, 
in three to five years, do we think this country is going to find itself in a better situation or not? And better is a really uh, operative word here. So if a country is in a very bad situation today, but it looks like it's, it's, it's getting better, we, we're probably really excited about that country. And conversely, if there's a country that's in a great situation today, but it looks like it's probably going to get a little bit worse over the next two or five years, we're not very excited about that country. And, you know, when we talk about policy, again, we're talking about things like the ease of, of doing business, um, how, how hospitable that, that country is for capital and for labor. Uh, and then we're also thinking about things like fiscal policy, uh, uh, monetary policy, um, and whatnot. And again, when I, when I talk about policy, I think some people think that policy means just what the government says that it's going to do. There is some truth to that, but you also want to see how much support there is for what that government says that it wants to do. So in that sense, you want to understand the power relationships in that country. In, in some countries, the unions may be very strong. So you want to understand what the unions are thinking. In some other countries, maybe religious leaders. And, and it, and again, it, it really, really varies. So, so that, that's one, the, the policy and that's the direction of change. Now you want to overlay that with valuation. Right. So bonds, uh, you can decompose the, the price of the bond mathematically just into the probability that there's a default on that bond, the recovery rate or loss given default, and then just U.S. interest rates. And so what you can do then is you can just calculate what is the price and probability of default. And you can say, you know, given the very basic things that, that I know about this country, to, uh, given the formation today, does it seem like the probability probability of default is very high or if it's very low? And so in an ideal world, what, what, um, what would be a great investment would be to say, okay, I actually think that policy in this country is getting better. So I so said the business environment is improving. Fiscal policy is getting better. Uh, monetary policy is, is, is improving. Uh, uh, trade policy, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that the probability of default today is actually too high given what I see today. And um, those are those are the, the, the two things. Now, when it comes to a country that has defaulted multiple times, for example, if it believes it's one of its apples, but you still put more money. So I'm curious, what is this, this particular case in Belize? What is it that gives you the confidence to do another investment? So, um, so I'll, I'll, I'll answer the question of Belize a little bit from the abstract, or at least from, from what I believe that investors were perhaps thinking, because Belize is one country where we have not been, uh, in, involved in, uh, and that's primarily because we, we, you know, we didn't see that there's that, that, that would, that, um, that we were looking for. So a country like Belize, I think becomes a very niche investment. So for, for some countries, you know, they, they've had a, unfortunately, a long story of, of defaults or restructurings, which frankly have not benefited, I think, neither the country nor the investors. But because of that, you've had investors who have built up a lot of expertise on the country and they probably feel more comfortable holding that what they know. Also, to be quite frank, I would, I would assume without having specific hard data that if you were an investor who held a large position in Belize, it may actually be relatively difficult for you to sell that position. And, and, you know, you, you can, you can think about it. It's a, it's a country that has a, a debt outstanding that is relatively small. So it already means that there's not a lot of other people looking at it. Other people looking, uh, looking at the country 
are saying, okay, you know, there's a number of things here that I that I may not per- particularly like. I may be concerned about another debt restructuring. But importantly, I know that I don't know a lot about the country. And then they get a phone call from somebody else who really knows Belize and says, hey, I actually want to get out of my position. Do you want to buy it from me? And of course, you know, talking about red flags, that, that raises all sorts of, 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 of red flags. Okay. So, okay. What about then? I'm curious how the approach works from your perspective directly. So I know you have, I believe, a Barbados position, have or had, I'm not too sure. Barbados is relatively very stable in the Caribbean, if one thing. I think last default was technically, I think, 1990s, perhaps, or something around that time. I'm curious how, in the in the event where you have a, a large position in on one country's bond portfolio, and then the country can't repay the bond portfolio, and then they have to go through some sort of restructuring process, how do you have a hands-on involvement in that to make sure that you aren't essentially, you know, destroyed by that restructuring process? Right. So, so, so this is a good question. It's a tough question too, but you know, these are, these are certainly the things that, that we as bond investors have to deal with. We would always love to be talking about the, the countries where everything is getting better, but um, uh, every, every now and then we recognize that things are not going to go well. Um, sometimes it's, it's nobody's fault. Sometimes it is uh, somebody's fault, but regardless, uh, we have to deal with the situation. You know, as, as, as creditors, there's a, there's a couple of things that, that, that we would want to do, or at least that we would like to have happen. I think that the, the first important part that you want to do as, as a creditor is you would like to engage with the government and, and hear about what the government's plans are. And you would also, uh, hopefully engage with the government and, and, and talk about, you know, what you as a creditor could be willing to do. A really, really important here is what people call preemptive uh, versus post-default restructurings. So there's a, a long uh, academic literature about uh, restructurings that happen before a formal default has. So the equivalent here is, you know, I can't make my mortgage payment by the end of, of the month. And so I go to the, the bank of, of, of Rashid Griffith and I say, Rashid, I would like to pay, but I just can't do it. I'm coming to you now. Can we work? something out, you know, I'm, I'm going to try my best, but I need a little bit of, of, of help from you. The post default is, you know, the end of the month comes by and I didn't pay and I, and I didn't uh, tell you anything and you have to come knocking on my door and be like, Federico, what, what's been going on? It's been two months. And it's very clear that the outcomes for both parties, creditors and debtors is much better under the preemptive restructuring than under the post default restructure. And so, so again, adding this back to, to the engagement part, you know, the, the first part that we would like is to really talk to the government, understand what, what they consider to, to, to be the, the, the problem, understand what they uh, consider to be the, the solution. And then we can also tell them, you know, a little bit about sort of, uh, how, how we view the, 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 the situation. I think in, in all of this time, like very cognizant that we're just foreign investors, right? Like we actually don't have any, any direct say into what the government's uh, uh, policies are, we respect that that's very much not our role. But but we're happy to share our opinions. Uh, now you know we we would in general like to see if if there has been some if it's been a, a more structural issue, you know not just uh, a shock that 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 hit the country and that was completely unforeseen. Um, that there be some adjustment to policy. 
that adjustment normally would happen hand in hand with the IMF. So, so, so engaging and really understanding the other side. And it, it's, it's just a, a very basic human thing. I think that, you know, you want to talk to the other person, you want to understand the other person. This is true personally, and this is true in business as well. The other important thing that creditors need to do, which sometimes doesn't get discussed enough, is that creditors need to coordinate with each other as well. So I'm a large holder in a restructuring, say I hold 10% of, of the debt stock and, and, and there's a default. I think it's incumbent um, upon me to go and reach out to other creditors and say, hey, something happened. We, we, we need to get together. We need to, to understand um, you know, what, what the view of creditors are. And this is really important because ultimately to restructure a bond, uh, given the legal clauses, and, and, and I know that, that, um, that, that you uh, discussed this with, with, with Thomas on, on one of your, your prior episodes, in many cases, we'll need to have 75% of creditors vote to say, yes, we are willing to do this or else absolutely nothing will happen. And in most cases, really 75% is kind of the bare minimum. You would like more like 95, 99% unanimous. And so you need creditors to, 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 to get together. And I think you, you see empirically, actually, that um, when creditors get together in one single creditor committee, a unified creditor committee, you see that restrictions are a lot shorter and also that there tends to be uh, less litigation in, involved. When you have lots of creditors, dispersed creditors is when you tend to get a lot more of the lawsuits. So again, um, I think engagement uh, is, is what we would uh, like to see. Um, related to some policy plan that is might be related to the the IMF, and happy to talk more 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 about that as well. And then the second thing is creditors need need to coordinate as well. Yeah, so I want to dive into that. So the IMF, not always. I think it's fair to say not always the most efficient structural adjustment um, program coordinator. And I'm curious then, there are or should be red flags. Oftentimes, yes, you're not a direct. For example, you're not, for example, a citizen of the country or not a company in the country, but you have a very large position in the country. And you would have certain views that the IMF may not have. But what happens in a situation where the IMF really is trying to strong arm the government into one direction and anyone looking outside can say that may not be the most efficient direction. But in my case, as the credit investor, that itself has me in a very um, challenging place. How do you kind of deal with that that scenario? To make sure I answer the, the right question, you're you're asking not just about the IMF strong ar- uh, arming the government, but also the IMF strong arming the government in a way that hurts creditors. Okay, okay. So, so on on the first part about the the IMF um, strong arming governments, and you know, this is uh, I'll give you at least the the the, the stock response that 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 the IMF would, would give you if you ever asked this question, which is that the, the IMF's counterpart is with the government. Uh, and so the IMF would not directly engage with creditors on, on, on any of, of these issues that if we want to uh, engage uh, with any entity, that would be with the government. The IMF itself considers itself uh, not to be a party to any restructuring or anything like that. So they may listen to us. They may provide us very factual updates, but, they're not intended to really engage with creditors, and and, and hopefully, uh, I'm I'm representing fairly the, the the views of the fund. Now, I do think that there's a lot of truth to that. So, you know, if the government uh, is properly advised and in such a process, 
I do think it's important that the government get good financial advisors because talking to the fund is not a, an, an easy process. The fund has uh, many, many trained economists, trained lawyers who who have very strong views. And if you if you disagree with them, I think the IMF is almost always willing to have a discussion. But you know, you 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 have to uh, be prepared to have that discussion, sort of at that intellectual level that the people at the fund are, are going to want to have. But the government does have to push back. And and I think if the government is properly advised or if the government has the, the proper uh, uh, human capital uh, within its own offices, then they should be able to um, to push back. Um, just to give one example, you know, I understand that this is very much what has happened, uh, what has happened with Jamaica. Jamaica has gone through through a couple of IMF programs. And I believe um, at least it was the one that the Jamaica, uh, the, the JDX, maybe also the, the follow up to, 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 to JDX. Uh, the government pushed back to the IMF when the IMF said that it wanted to see the, the policy plan uh, be formed in a certain way, and they were able to do so successfully. Um, so I do think that that is something that the government can do. And I will also note that at least I believe that the IMF today is very different than the IMF that we saw 20 years ago. And, you know, when you have the, when you have the structure adjustment programs, that was a very cookie cutter approach. It was very much, okay, your country is going to come in. And they're going to devalue the exchange rate. They're, they're going to tighten fiscal policy. They're going to cut social spending. And the IMF still does a degree of that, but I think to a much, much lesser degree than, than, than what it used to. Uh, you know, to the point that the IMF recently put out a paper saying that capital controls were okay in some instances, which is a, a great departure from, from what they've done before. So that's the first part about the IMF trying to, to strong arm a government. Now, when it comes to strong arming the government, or perhaps, frankly, maybe the government and the IMF agree that they want to do this, but it's presented as a policy that's coming from the IMF to creditors, it's a negotiation tactic, which I mean, I, I, I understand that the tactic. I think what creditors uh, have to do and should do is say, okay, so as, as, as I said before, you know, we creditors, I don't think have a say in how the in what the government's plan should be. However, I do think that I, as a creditor, more specifically as a representative of my clients, have a very strong duty to protect my clients' assets. And if anybody is going to ask our asset or our client's assets, because they're not actually Eden Vance Morgan Stanley's assets, or the assets that belong to our clients, if they're going to say that these assets should be written down by a certain amount, well, I need to be able to go um, to my board and tell them this is the best deal that we can do. And this is a fair deal. It's an equitable deal. It is a reasonable deal. I can't go to, to the board and say, well, the IMF or the government or this other organization really wants us to do this. That's not really a very good argument. So what, so all that I can say is if, if there's a proposal that is not equitable, that is not fair for our clients, then that's not a proposal that we can take. Hmm. So again, so again, what would you do? So how do you get into a position where it's a much more fair, or at least, you know, perceived to be fair proposal? So, so this is when the, re when a restructuring becomes protracted. Right. So, so in, in, in this case, unfortunately, what you have to do is wait. 
and you have to wait until the the until the other side is willing to 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 review what the what the uh, either what the policy plan is or frankly just what 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 they're offering to investors uh, in in a way that that is fair that is fair and reasonable and you know what it could also be that 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 with time and analysis and conversations again i think engagement is really really important here it may be that that I as a creditor recognized that I was actually wrong, and maybe I was asking for something that wasn't fair or equitable. It's 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 perfectly fine, but um, I I do think that it's it's important for 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 the parties when they're talking and restructuring to be transparent and to really be putting their cards on the table. If they don't do that, and if and if they 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 start by saying, well, you know, that this this country is never going to grow again, and the country needs to run really large fiscal deficits, so we need a ninety percent haircut, that, that that's just not really credible. And since it's not credible, I can't accept that. And since I'm not going to accept that, then the restructuring process is going to take a lot longer, and that is not something that the government wants. And and the IMF also has a number of well, both both legal uh, kind of like legal frameworks in place as well as some policies that means that they can't really be lending a lot into a position uh, when there's never going to be any debt restructuring. Have you been in a situation where the say the the negotiation was so protracted that you had to find an alternative uh, method of going forward? So I think sometimes pauses are productive things in a negotiation. You know, so so I I think for sure we we've had the times where we were talking a lot, and and you know you you probably sometimes find this if you're arguing with a friend or with a not friend. Sometimes it's good if you like pause for thirty minutes and you come back, and then you'll actually be 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 be, be more willing to discuss. So um, I I think that definitely happens. Say that uh, for me though, it's it's not as much as as trying to find a. A different method, but sometimes it's very important to know who you're talking to, who that person represents, and also their, uh, what authority that person has. It's really important, I think, to have principle to principle discussions. So when when you're when you're talking to somebody, you you want to see, okay, am I am I talking to somebody who has been told, hey, um, he here are some here are some three talking points. Go and 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 give the, the these three talking points, and if they say something, go back to one of the three talking points and keep on doing it over and over again. That discussion um, will will actually be useful for maybe the first thirty minutes because I'm sure those three talking points are relevant. But if you're trying to get to a deal, right? If we're if if I'm here and then you're over there and we're trying to get a little bit closer, that discussion might might not be very useful. So you might have to stop and say, okay, maybe I should be talking to somebody else. Um, and I think that that is something that that is that that is relatively common that happens in many restructurings. Mm, I see. When you're again looking to invest in a in a bond market for an emerging market, or even after the restructuring process happening, you need more credible information to you to come to your own conclusions. Do you typically have a problem when it comes to the information provided by uh, the small countries who? may not have the human capital capacity to produce as much data as you would like. Uh, yes, that is a major, major problem. Um, and I would say that is one thing that many of these countries could do that I think would actually lower lower their borrowing costs and, and, and increase and, and increase the, the group of people who would be willing to invest in that country. Um, I actually remember um, 
One of my one of my former RAs would joke uh, when he was still uh, my research associate that that he wanted to go to the Caribbean and set up an, an office that would just improve the investor relations website of all countries. And he said that that this would 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 bring down borrowing costs enough so that that they, they could finance large payments to to him and whatnot. And 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 I think he was really onto something. So there's there, there's many small things such as spreadsheets are uploaded in PDF format. PDF formats are notoriously crazy to actually extract the the the, the information and put them into any sort of software that you're going to use to analyze that data. And you know that they started out but with the spreadsheet. You know, so th- those are, they're, they're very small, small, small things like that. I will say, um, the IMF does a pretty good job here at, 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 so for I think almost any country, um, releasing a report of what data that that country releases and, uh, and what data that country does not release importantly to how frequent it is. Right. So, so I know that there, there are some, some major countries in the Caribbean that don't actually uh, release quarterly GDP figures. In some cases, the annual GDP figures are actually delayed. And, you know, I will say, um, you know, there, there, there are days where I'm feeling a little bit more selfish and I'm saying that's actually a really good thing because I'm willing to go through 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 the work of slogging through all, all of these websites and understanding what's uh, going on. But, I ha- but, you know, it's not good for the country. It, like, th- this is just showing up in, in, in higher financing costs. And then... I will say there are separate issues too, which I wouldn't call them human capital related, but there is still like a, a, a lack of transparency in some documents where you just don't, don't have them. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm happy to talk a, a little bit about that as well. So, okay. About that. So one, I, I also suspect, given my own investigation into this particular problem, that sometimes GDP is not even properly uh, calculated, uh, in many cases. Uh, curious if you could spell out first, what exactly would be the mechanism that if they have better information, they will have lower borrowing costs? Okay, so it's it's two things. So so for one is you literally have a group of people who won't look at certain countries, who won't look at any investments, period, unless they have a certain amount of data. These tend to actually be larger institutions where they say they, they have a much more formal process where they say, well, we want to look at, at this very specific metric A and we compare the, this metric a, a across countries and we want this metric A to be above a, a certain level. But if you can't calculate metric A for that country, and the country, by the way, is, is, is small to begin with, so you feel like you can ignore it. It's not Brazil or Turkey where you might feel like you have to go and, 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 and manually calculate that, that, that number itself. Then effectively that country for that investor becomes uninvestable. So when you have all of that information out there, then that country does become, it, it literally becomes investable for some people who, who weren't uh, going to invest. And just probability wise, um, some of those people will end up investing in that country. And so that, that were lower borrowing costs. So, so that's one thing. A second thing is a little bit less straightforward, which is that fixed income investors tend to be pessimistic people. As, as I, as, as I told you, you know, our, um, our whole business is in some sense, you put par in and you hope to get par plus some coupons back. That, that's not a, a lot of upside. And you're all the time thinking about potentially losing 100%. Um, what, what that means is that a lot of investors, if they see that there's some uh, data that's not there, they generally tend to make the worst possible assumption. Maybe not worst possible assumption, but they're likely to make an assumption that they think is conservative, 
right? And conservative means on average that's going to be worse than reality. And so that means that they're going to be treating the country as if it were a worse credit than what it actually is. So again, the, those the, the, those two things. The, the first one is just by having the, the the data be available, people will will be able to, to to analyze it. And the second one is just the conservative nature of fixed income investors means that releasing more information is almost always the right thing. Even though I hear government officials remark, and I understand I understand their point that ah, they're just concerned that if they release information and people misinterpret it, that it's going to be wrong. Totally fair concern, but I think in practice that ends up not being the case. Is this a problem that can have a private market solution? Or, for example, the government just does not produce the data in answer for you can't even format it properly? You, you mean a private market solution in the sense that perhaps some other vendor could try to compile that, that the information and distribute it? Yeah, like, for example, does the data exist somewhere? but it's just not in a good format or the data just simply does not exist. Oh, I, yeah. So, so you definitely have two of those things going on. So sometimes the data doesn't exist in a, in a very useful format. And actually there are um, unsurprisingly vendors which are intended to specialize in just getting data, cleaning it up, putting it in a, in, in, in a well or organized way, and then having an API so that investors can, can download uh, that, uh, can download that data. I'll say even I'll I'll just say from from knowing some of the, these vendors and using them still for some reason they don't cover the Caribbean country maybe it's because maybe they're they're just too small and there isn't enough uh, uh, demand for it uh, but yeah then then there's also probably some data that that isn't produced and I think that's something that's more difficult to to actually face I would argue that it seems like this is the sort of problems that the IMF would love to provide technical assistance uh, missions for the IMF is, is really good at dealing with some of these, the, these data issues. So I think it's still a problem that most countries uh, could try to solve. Um, but yeah, but, but that one d- 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 does become more, more, more difficult. That's a fair point. But it seems if it's a, still a problem, I mean, I'm actually not very good at solving the problem then. Given yeah, they have to also know the, the problem is just the last 20 years. Anyway, so I, I just, <laughs> um, I'm curious now about the emergence of uh, Chinese state bank lenders in the Caribbean. So you see recently a lot of Chinese governments have been going to Chinese, uh, sorry, a lot of Caribbean governments have been going to Chinese state banks to have loans. And I believe it was last year, or could be even 2020, pandemic time lapse, um, the Minister of Finance of Trinidad had mentioned that he preferred to go to the Chinese state bank and not the IMF. For what you mentioned earlier, it is too complicated to go to the IMF. And also, the IMF has too many requirements to go along taking the money. But it seems like, on one level, it's a good thing that the Caribbean governments can take in money easier from these alternative venues. But I think that the actual critique of Chinese lending, I, I don't really hear much uh, about, is that it subsidizes bad policy because actually it's a bit more easy to get the money. That's not a good thing. They're not forcing the money there to not some debt trap. By the same time, it subsidizes the government are having to continue to have, you know, poor data, not good commitment, longer commitments, kind of finding the sky policies and so on. 
So I'm curious to know if in your day-to-day job, has this emergence of Chinese lands in the Caribbean impacted how you can actually land in the Caribbean? Yes. Okay. So that is a, that is a multi-layered question. I'm actually curious to know what, what your answer to the, the, the broader question of, of how is it that, 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 that Chinese lending is affecting uh, private sector uh, uh, lending to the region. But let, let me, let me give you my, 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 my view on that first. So one is, okay. So, uh, gosh, the, 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 there's, there's many d- different ways to answer this question. So, um, let me talk a little bit about how I see potentially the, the way that Chinese lenders behave to be, um, not at odds, but just a different approach than, than other lenders. I'll make some comments about debt carrying capacity, but then I'll, I'll go back to the, the size of the Caribbean. And my, my, my understanding, um, is that a lot of Chinese lenders and, and some of this, um, uh, I've learned from your podcast and from listening to, to guests on your podcast is that they tend to think of themselves as project lenders. So, so they will, they will think about, okay, you know, there's the Sam Lord's castle or, or some other project. And I'm looking at the economics of that project. And if the economics of that project looks good, I will then lend to a ministry or I will lend to the government in such a way, though, that it is, that it is an, an, an irrevocable obligation of the government as a whole. So it's not the obligation of a specific state and enterprise. Uh, but it has, and, and if it were though, it would have a, a, a government guarantee. Now that's a little bit different, um, than the way that say, uh, you know, in, in investors in a space such as mine, uh, think about their lending. We generally think about our lending as not being specific to a project. So, so we will lend. And when we lend, we ask the government about what they plan on doing with the money. And they may say, well, we actually want to refurbish Sam Lords. But we take the view, and I think most economists would take the view that, well, money is fungible and it doesn't mean necessarily that the money was, was, was going to, to this project. You know, may, maybe you were going to build that project anyways. And if we didn't lend you the money, what was going to happen was you were like not going to buy new computers for, um, for your ministry of labor or something like that. So we, we, we tend to, be interested in these proceeds, but we don't think that it's the project economics that are necessarily going to guarantee that, that, um, that, that we're repaid. So this can then present potential issues down the line. If a lender call it the Exim Bank or somebody else is saying, well, our project economics worked, right? They were, they, they, they were good economics. We knew exactly what we were lending to. You just spent a lot of money on other things. And that's why you can't pay us. But in reality, you can pay us because the, the, those revenues from the project, you should be, think, be thinking of them as ours. And I believe that that's authentically what they're thinking of. Whereas for us, we're thinking about it more as a, as a big, as just one big pot of money. So at least that that's one potential issue. I'd say so far, I haven't seen that issue become very salient, but I can foresee maybe in some other countries that are on that have restructurings uh, uh, with China start start to see some of that uh, go on. A second thing is, um, and this goes very much to your point about sort of the the subsidizing bad behavior. I think that is very much cor- uh, well. I, I think that the 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 incentives are the incentives are there right and i would say in particularly you would you would need for that to be true for the chinese lender to not really be uh be scrutinizing what that money is ultimately going to be used for and if that happens then that certainly lowers the the cost of bad behavior and you probably get more bad behavior now 
you know, I, I was talking before about how debt to GDP doesn't really make sense a, a, as a metric. One reason I think that is because, or the many reasons I should say, you know, what, what, what I'll call the debt carrying capacity varies widely from one country to another country. And so there may be a small country such as Cambodia, which could only sustain 40% debt to GDP. You know, this is something that, um, you know, people like Michael Pettis talk about very well. It depends on, 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 on what, on what assets you can build. It depends on your, the ability of the different, uh, uh, agents in your country to, to allocate money to different investments. Um, if you have many different investments, you can probably carry on a lot more debt because you have productive things to, to, to do with that money. Uh, but then also if you have more ability to withstand shocks, then your debt carrying capacity goes up as well. So debt is mostly a, a, a fixed number that you have to pay each year. But if you have more adjustment valves, then you can probably carry on more debt. Strangely enough, if you say, well, I have this other lender here called China, which is able to come in here relatively quickly at, at a, at a moment's notice. And we have a really great relationship that may increase your overall debt capacity, even adjusting for, uh, for, for additional debt from China. So in that sense, could be that private investors would say, oh, now I'm more willing to lend because China's lending. Again, I think this is, it's, it's a little bit theoretical because it depends on, well, do you think that the Chinese, uh, that the Chinese lending is subordinating you? Do you think that the Chinese, if you think the Chinese lenders are not really doing any sort of due diligence, then you might not think that the debt carrying capacity is higher. So I, I think that can potentially, uh, uh, expand upon the, the, the issue that, that you're bringing up. The third issue is, I will say, and just in terms of sort of the, the crowding out or, or not of private capital, the Caribbean market is pretty small. And again, because of the way that the Caribbean market is set up, there's not a lot of great data on it. Issue sizes are not very liquid. You don't see a lot of investors who are sort of trying to get in on the Caribbean market. And so my guess is that you probably don't have a lot of crowding out purely because there's not a lot of people trying to get through the door. So you can probably have more people fit in the door. Um, so anyways, it's a, it's, it's a very, very good, it's a very, very good question. Um, but actually would, 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 would love to hear your, uh, your take on it. I suspect over time there might be more colored out because, you know, because Caribbeans are so small that this, let's call it project based financing does impact quite substantial amount of borrowing. So, you know, three projects could be a, the entire purpose of having an entire bond transfer period for you know half a year. So I think that quite out could be a thing. Even you know, for example, for example, many many years ago, this is you know, Barbados did a specific bond issuance uh, for to build a port, the Deepwater Harbor port in Barbados. This was a very unique one because it was a yen bond, but in nineteen seventies, sixties, could be even fifties, to be honest. And the country got wrecked because when Japan went boom, a lot of the positions were kind of hard to fill and that's, you know, cascaded into an economic crisis, uh, for down. Now, I, I do suspect there will, there will be a, a UN bond in, in the Caribbean very soon. And that's not because it's a particularly good idea. That's because I think for a political expediency of borrowing money, again, come, when it comes back to, uh, poor fiscal, uh, policy, I think that might be an option for, you know, to combine marketing and easy money at the same time, I think that, you know, so we the first Caribbean panda ball on the beach, you know, some, something like that. 
I think will happen pretty soon. I do have the problem because because the Caribbean governments, in my view, are actually not prudent. Then when you have parties willing to uh, meet that non actually with 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 with, with money, that's a very bad combination. Now, at the same time, I also fully accept the idea that, sure, Caribbean governments need to get money to fund projects, and therefore having more funds is a good thing. But I really do think that the reason why they can't get money is because they don't have good um, um, structures in their financial departments or their treasury and can't borrow commercially. I think the lack of commercial borrowing is actually the reason why Chinese can lend more money in the Caribbean. And commercial borrowings lack because the Caribbean governments themselves are lax when it comes to data, when it comes to human capacity, when it comes to even having audits in Treasury, which haven't happened in many years in the Caribbean. So I do think there's a risk there. And because um, governments in the Caribbean are fairly some are fairly unaccountable, at least there are three, three that I'm thinking of. This can persist for a long time. And that kind of fiscal imprudence being subsidized by easy money is, again, not a very good combination. Right. Yeah, it's it's actually a, a very interesting take that it's the lack of commercial borrowers that are allowing the the, the Chinese, sorry, commercial lenders that are allowing the, the, the Chinese lenders mm-hmm. um, to, to, to go in. Yeah. But it's the same. It's also the same issue with the concessionary finance, right? You hear Caribbean governments go and land base the World Bank for, hey, oh, you guys right, won't right. give us cheap money. <laughs> but it's like, you know, in an economic position of where the Caribbean is, there's no need for cheap money. You just need to have commercially viable money. But they don't want to organize themselves in a way. You know, that's just the big difference between, say, Barbados and Bermuda. Bermuda will be able to raise a billion dollars, but it feels like, and Barbados has to go and complain to UN and can't get cheap money. So I think that's the kind of real um, weird situation in Caribbean that isn't, I think, at least brought up enough to why these alternative lending is kind of being so uh, salient in the last, like, even just five years. Yeah, no, that, 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 that is a very, very good point. And uh, yeah, I, I agree that a lot of times what you need is, I mean, just to, 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 to go back again to the, 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 the policy point. I mean, if you have good policy, which includes also having, having good human, human resources in your public credit department and good human resources in your planning department so that you know what you're going to spend the money uh, on. And you can clearly say, Hey, look, um, I'm putting in these solar panels. I won't need to, um, buy expensive fuel oil and that is a drag on the foreign exchange uh uh that 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 we need this is a really great plan i mean i think those are the things that commercial lenders uh, would certainly want to 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 fund yeah do you think that this is I guess a more uh us professional in any in industry question do you think that there should be more um let's call them activist hedge funds in Small markets, uh, you know, provide liquidity for, you know, particular ends. So, um, maybe I'll, 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 I, I will reframe it. I, I think, I think it's very good to have, um, special or people, they can be at different manage, at asset managers. They don't all have to be at one, but people who specialize in different regions. And I do believe that a really important uh, part of what asset managers do is ultimately allocate capital, right? And so, you know, 
actually almost everybody in finance does this over some period of uh, over some different period of time right uh, uh, a a bank um will 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 uh participate in in liquidity or in maturity transformation they they will they will take in deposits which are um just essentially one day assets or liabilities depending on your point of view and they will transform that into five year assets or liabilities which are loans uh, you take market makers at major Wall Street banks. They are providing liquidity too, as well, but it's generally very, very short term, right? They, they, you want to sell something, they will buy it for you and they're looking to, to sell it to somebody else over one day. And the sort of liquidity transformation and maturity transformation and capital allocation that we're doing is we're taking the, the capital from, from very, uh, large holders of capital, such as insurance funds, uh, pension funds and whatnot. Um, and we're allocating them to other countries for, you know, I, I think I said at the beginning, a three to, uh, a one to three year period, but would really love that to be a five to 10 year period. Now, now to do that though, and to do that properly, you do need people who are specialized in, uh, in the different parts of the market. So you're not going to be able to do that very well for the Caribbean. If it's just somebody, if let's say um, Bahamas knocks on, on your door tomorrow and says, hey, um, I'd love to get a $250 million loan, it's unlikely that that person is going to be able to understand everything that needs to be understood in a very short period of time, right? But if 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 you're building out expertise in specific regions, um, then, I, then, then, I think that, then I think that you can do that, right? Um, so yes, yeah, so so there was the, the the short version to answer. Yes, I, I think that there should be there should be more specialized pools of capital. And um, again, I think I, I mentioned the, the the edge part before. To it's it's also really really useful. You know, if 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 you're if you're sort of playing in in the in the room where there aren't that that many other people, then it's more likely I think that you as an investor and your clients too will will, will achieve a big a big outcome. Federico, thank you so much for this very insightful conversation. Uh, I do think we might have to do a part two at some point soon. Always fantastic to talk to you about uh, China and the Caribbean. And again, I've been uh, listening to all the episodes of, of the <laughs> podcast. So very, very excited. And uh, uh, thank you once again for having me, Rashid. Rashid.